Thank you for that, Grace. Uh, if you have a Bible, you might want to open your Bibles up to uh, Mark chapter 8. Uh, I'm going to pray for us. There is an outline as well in your bulletins that will help you follow along uh, that I hope will be helpful for you. Uh, I wish I could do uh, a summary uh, like Anna and just actually I can actually. It's actually only one verse that we're looking at really today. So uh, you'll see. And so we run out of time. That's all right. Uh, as long as you remember the, ver- the verse, the Jesus' call to discipleship, uh, you would have got the gist of the sermon. Let me pray for us. Gracious God, we do thank you that you speak in and through your word. We thank you that your word is truth and it comes to us not just as a word to challenge us, but also a word to encourage us. We do pray and ask that by your spirit, you might better help us understand uh, what it means to follow Jesus. Uh, who he is in our lives, confront us, Father, with uh, the question of where we stand with him this morning. We do ask this in his name. Amen. DTR. Some of you are very familiar with that. Uh, You are constantly in conversations with members of the opposite sex. DTR, defining the relationship. Uh, defining the relationship is a rite of passage that many couples go through. Uh, It's the... What are we conversation? Are we friends? Are we more than friends? Do we want to be more than friends? And I know some of you have gone through that stage in the last uh, four or five months, defining the relationship. And so there comes a time when you've got to work out what is your relationship to the other person? What does the other person mean to you? You have to define the relationships. Uh, If you are one of the high schoolers or one of the uni students here, uh, you know, you might want to ask mom and dad, how did you meet because at some point, your mom and dad had to define the relationship. Uh, I'm always laughing because I always think of Roger and Caroline. It's, uh, Car- Roger actually saw Caroline first, uh, but she had no interest in him. In fact, he tells me that he walked over to, to church camp. They, he's known her since high school uh, in their previous church. He sat down with her to say hello, and then she got up and actually walked across the room. It's like, wow, you know, that's like, but he persisted, right? Finally, in her Bible study group, he plucks up the courage. They go watch a movie and meal. And at the end of the day, he tells me that Caroline actually hands Roger one of her thank you notes. You know, Caroline writes thank you notes, handmade, colorful notes. And in the note, she thanked him. And then at the end, there was a smiley face. You know, look, and, and it's like, you know, and, and Roger's like, what does that mean? Like, you know, does it mean anything? Uh, maybe it was just a smiley face, right? But that's old school WhatsApp where you handwrite stuff. But at some point, you've got to ask yourself, right? What does this relationship mean? Let's define the relationship. Are we just friends? Are we more than friends? Do we want to be more than friends? It's, and that's, that's what happens in any relationship. That's the defining moment in any relationship. Once you answer the question, the relationship will never be the same. Now, so that sort of question forces us to do one of two things. Either it sets us on a collision course with each other, or it puts us on the same path, right? So it forces us to decide who is the other person to us. Now, this is what's going to happen in Mark chapter 8. When you get to Mark chapter 8, Jesus wants us to define our relationship with him. Who am I to you? Who do you say I am? And how you answer that question will either move you forward in your relationship with Jesus, or it's going to actually 
cause you to come to blows with him. It's going to set you in a collision path with him. Now, in your Bibles, if you have your Bibles, very quickly, uh, I'm not doing uh, verse 1 to verse 21, but I'm going to quickly skim it for you, because as you get to Mark chapter 8, we are actually a reminder in the opening verses of Mark chapter 8 that you can actually be very close to Jesus, very familiar with Jesus, but blind to who he is in your life. Uh, that's verse 1 to verse 21. So what's happening in Mark chapter 8, verse 1 to verse 10, uh, there's actually a second feeding that takes place. And so a couple of weeks ago, you looked at the feeding of the 5,000. And then in chapter 8, there's the feeding of the 4,000, right? So previously, Jesus feeds 5,000, chapter 6. Now you've got the feeding of the 5,000. But what you discover in this second feeding is that the disciples of Jesus are blind. Uh, They are still blind to Jesus because it's kind of strange, right? They've seen Jesus feed 5,000. And then here you've got another 4,000. And we read, again, Jesus' compassion on the crowds. Uh, for three days they followed him. They've got nothing to eat. And the disciples are st- still blind. Look at verse 4 with me. They ask, but where in this remote place can anyone get enough bread to feed them? And then Jesus does the same thing, doesn't he? He took bread, he gives thanks, he breaks it, he distributes it, and everyone ate and they were satisfied. The disciples are actually blind to Jesus. The God who is able to feed his people in the wilderness, again, is present. The shepherd who is feeding and satisfying the hungry sheep beside still waters is doing it here again. Which is why what happens in verse 11 to verse 21 is very comical. We're meant to laugh when we read verse 11 to verse 21 because you've got two feeding, and then in the next scene, two things are going to come together. Because what you find is Jesus is in the boat with his disciples. And, you know, we've seen it before. What happened uh, the last time Jesus was in the boat with the disciples a couple of chapters back? He calmed the wind and the waves and the storm, didn't he? He demonstrated his power over nature and chaos and their circumstances. That's chapter 4. But what happens is in verse 11 to verse 21, the disciples of Jesus have forgotten to bring food. They've forgotten to bring bread. They only have one loaf. And they're worried about bread. Isn't that funny? Uh, And Jesus says, you guys are blind. You're so thick, aren't you? You are worrying about bread. When I fed the 5,000, he says to them, how many baskets of food were left? 12. When I fed the 4,000, how many baskets of food were left? Seven. Don't you get it? You're worrying about bread. Don't you see the king who feeds his people is with you? The shepherd who is able to feed and satisfy the hungry sheep, he's with you. I was in control the last time we were out here. I, I fed the 5,000, then the 4,000, and there's only 12 of you, and you have one loaf, and you're all worried. That's what's happening. And that's the lesson. You can be very close to Jesus and actually be blind to him. His power, his provision, uh, his security, his forgiveness, his grace. The disciples of Jesus have been on this incredible journey with Jesus Eight chapters, and so have you. The last few weeks, you've looked at these eight chapters, and that's what you've seen the last few weeks. The king of God's kingdom has come in Jesus. It's present. It's breaking in. And God's kingdom has come in Jesus to restore, to heal, to forgive. He's pushing back the darkness of our broken world. And what we're meant to see is God's king at work, demonstrating his power over the demonic 
His power to restore and heal the sick. His power over death. His power and control over nature and its chaos. His ability to feed the hungry. And so chapter 1 and chapter 8, if you've never realized this of Mark's gospel, is meant to give us a panoramic landscape of the king of God's kingdom at work. And it's meant to make you ask this question, who is this man? Who is this Jesus? Now, here's the problem. Even, even after everything has taken place, uh, even in the vivid colors of 8D, 325 inches screen, those closest to Jesus can sometimes be blind to him. That's the whole point of these first opening w- verses. It was true of the first disciples of Jesus, and I think it's also true for many of us as we observe Jesus. You can be a regular at church sometimes for years and still be blind to Jesus. You can be a witness to his goodness and his provision in your life and still be blind to Jesus. You can even, as you've heard, be brought up in a Christian family and still be blind to Jesus. Now, let me tell you why. Because many of us here, we worry over bread, not realizing that the God who has fed thousands has come in Jesus and he is with us. Surely he can satisfy and meet your everyday needs in life. We worry about Whether the boat will stay afloat, we worry that the boat will sink in our lives. The circumstances somehow we worried about. But we forget that the God who is with his disciples has stilled the wind and the waves. He's come in Jesus. Surely he's still in control. The wind and the waves know his name and he knows yours. We work to earn our way with God because somehow we think we must pay back our sin. We must we get on the treadmill of performance and life and good works because we think we must be good enough for God. And what we actually forget is Jesus has secured our forgiveness. And so what's going to happen now is from verse 27, Jesus will put forward two questions that we have to ask. Two questions that define your relationship with him. Okay? Who is Jesus to you? So if you have your Bibles, look at verse 27. Jesus and his disciples, they went on to the villages around Caesarea, Philippi. And on the way, he asked them, who do people say I am? They replied, some say John the Baptist, others say Elijah, and still others, one of the prophets. Notice, here's the first question, isn't it? Who do other people say I am? And so the crowds who've been following Jesus, who have heard his teaching, who have seen him at work, Other people around at church, maybe, you know, in Extreme, in ACG, friends around you at work, uh, parents here, who who do they say Jesus is? And I want to say to you, whether you're a visitor, a newcomer, whether you're religious or not a religious, everyone has a view of Jesus, right? Everyone has a view of Jesus. And it's generally positive. People generally have a positive view of Jesus. They normally give him the thumbs up. Some say he's a good man. Some say he's a great moral teacher. Others will say he's a great religious leader. Some say he's a prophet. And so Jesus says, who do people around you say I am? And the vast majority of people around us are normally positive when it comes to Jesus. And that's a very easy question to answer, isn't it? You know, if I said to you, who do people say Jesus is, you'll have a view. But the answer requires no commitment on your part, no surrender, Uh, No acknowledgement of his claims, no trust in his work. It's very easy to answer that question. The harder question comes in the next verse that Jesus asks, because the next question Jesus asks actually requires commitment on your part. Look, look what he asks next. All right, how you answer verse twenty-nine either sets you on a collision path with Jesus, or it puts you on a, a path with him. This is the define the relationship question, right? And so. 
the relationship between Jesus and his disciples now come to a crossroad. Verse 29, but what about you? Who do you say I am? What am I to you? Right? What about you? Who do you say I am? And that's the question Jesus puts to those who have walked with him, who have experienced his power, who have experienced his grace, who have seen him at work. Who do you say I am? What about you? And Peter noticed, verse 29, Peter replied, you are the Messiah. And, you know, it's crazy because if you read the first chapters of, uh, eight chapters of Mark's gospel, for the very first time, someone gets it right. You are the Messiah. Uh, And it's meant to take us back all the way to Mark chapter 1, because in Mark chapter 1, that's how Jesus was introduced to us. The beginning of the gospel, the beginning of the good news about Jesus, the Messiah, the Christ, God's promised king. That's what it means, right? Christ, Messiah, God's promised king, they mean the same thing. Here's the, here's, here for the first time after eight chapters, someone finally realizes that Jesus is not just a good man. He's not just a good teacher like Buddha. He's not just one of the Jewish religious leaders. He's not just a prophet like Muhammad. Someone finally realizes that Jesus is the Messiah, God's promised king who has come to bring God's kingdom into the world. And that's good news, isn't it? Because for eight chapters in Mark's gospel, the rule of God's king has begun. He's pushing back the darkness of our fallen world and our fallen lives. Peter is saying, Jesus, you are the king, God's promised king. You're the one God has chosen to make right what is wrong with our lives and our world. You're the one through whom God is going to crush our enemies and actually make things right. That was the Jewish expectation of the Messiah, the king. You know, when you think of um, uh, hero stories, right? You know, we we watch hero stories. we, We do that sort of thing. What does the hero come to do? The hero comes to crush the enemy, The hero comes to lead his people victoriously, right? That was the Jewish expectation. And I'm sure one of the, um, in in the last few weeks, someone would have said that preaching here, that Israel at the time was under Roman occupation. And so the expectation is that when the Messiah comes, he would actually crush the Romans and he would establish the rule of God for the people of God. And so there's excitement, right? Because when Jesus is introduced to us in Mark's gospel, Jesus announces what? The kingdom of God. And then he's performing and he's doing all these really powerful things, right? Uh, And so you see there, and so people are excited. It's here, it's come, it's near. Liberation is coming. Uh, the, The drumbeat really rallying the troops to war is what you hear when you see Jesus. The king is about to act. And guess what? He's on his way to Jerusalem, the heart of the capital of the Jewish people. That's his city. That's his throne. And so Peter thinks Jesus is going to come as a conquering king. There must be greater things to come because he's on his way to Jerusalem. But then you discover that Jesus is not the kind of king anyone expects. Because notice... Jesus says, Peter, you are right. I am the Messiah. I am God's king, but I must die. And that's what you find in verse 31. Two worlds are going to collide, right? Right here, right now, which is going to send the disciples into this crazy spiral because the king says, I will conquer by dying. This king says, I will establish the rule of the kingdom of God by dying. 
The king says he will save his people by being killed. The king is going to ascend his throne in Jerusalem by being nailed on a cross. Verse 31, he then began to teach them that the son of man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders, the chief priests and teachers of the law, and that he must be killed and after three days rise again. He spoke plainly about this and Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. That's kind of funny, right? Jesus says, you're right. I'm the king of God's kingdom. I'm going to bring an end to every brokenness in your life. I'm, I'm going to save you from every enemy. Uh, I, I'm going to forgive you and deal with all your guilt and sin, but it won't come by the way you expect because I'm going to do it by suffering, by death on the cross. He establishes his rule. He saves by dying. Now, you know that there's a little phrase there that you can actually see in verse 31. He, Jesus calls himself the son of man, doesn't he? Uh, he began to teach him that the Son of Man must suffer. Uh, and that's a very special title in Mark's Gospel. Uh, it's a special title because it actually comes from Daniel chapter 7. Uh, I'm going to read it. You don't have to look it up. It's a title that's uh, ascribed to someone in Daniel 7 who is given godlike power and authority. A human figure. A Son of Man. And so in Daniel chapter 7, verse 13, verse 14, Daniel sees someone who looks like a son of man. And then we read, There before me was one like a son of man. He was given authority, glory, and sovereign power. All nations and people of every language worshipped him. His rule is an everlasting rule that will not pass away. And his kingdom is one that will never be destroyed. Now, in that vision, Daniel actually sees a figure who looks human, a son of man, uh, to whom God gives every power, every rule, every authority, whose kingdom never ends. And so when you read this verse, uh, what Jesus says in Mark 8, Jesus, in effect, is saying, I am that son of man. I am that king. And for, for the last eight chapters, you've seen my power. Uh, because I'm doing only what God can do. But then he throws a spanner in the works, doesn't he? Because he says, the Son of Man must suffer and die. We don't read, the Son of Man must conquer, must rule, must crush his enemies. We read and say, the Son of Man must die. And so, it's confusing because it's a contradiction to speak of a suffering king, a dying king, a rejected Son of Man. Because the king comes with a sword to conquer, not to die. And so if Jesus is Messiah and he comes to save his people, what good will he be if he dies? Can you see the problem for the disciples of Jesus? What good is it if Jesus is God's king and he's come to save us, but he dies? And so for Peter and all those listening, it's a contradiction. It's ridiculous. Now, for us in this room today, we live this side of the cross, don't we? But because we live this side of the cross, we know that this is exactly how Jesus is king. Because Jesus saves and he conquers every enemy precisely through suffering and death. Why must the king die? Why must Jesus have to suffer and die to save? Now, as Mark's gospel unfolds, you discover why, because Jesus himself tells us why he must die. Uh, when you get to Mark chapter 10, verse 45... Uh, a very popular verse, Mark 10, verse 45, Jesus tells us that he's not like the kings of this world. He's not like the heroes of this world, right? Because he says, Mark 10, 45, the kings of this world, they come to be served by others. 
uh, they demand you serve them because they are powerful. That's true, right? But Jesus comes to serve. He's a very different kind of king. He uses his power to serve you. And so Mark 10, 45, many of you are familiar with that verse. Uh, Jesus says, for even, again, the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. How? And to give his life a ransom for many. To give his life a ransom for many. That's how he serves. He comes to save you from a darkness far greater than your hunger, uh, from a need uh, far greater right, than your physical sickness, healing from sickness or disease. Uh, he comes to save you from a darkness far greater than the circumstances that actually threaten to drown you. That's why in Mark's gospel, there is actually a third feeding. Did you know that? Jesus feeds the 5,000, he feeds the 4,000, but do you know there's a third feeding in Mark's gospel? Do you know where? Come on, some of you here, you know, Bible readers here, I know some of you will know the answer. Where's, where's the third feeding in Mark's gospel? Is in? J.U.? The Lord's Supper. Oh, he's a good apprentice, isn't he? It's like all the others didn't say anything except for J.U., Right? Clement was like, oh, I wonder where that is now. No, he knew enough. Clement knew. Clement knew, right? He was just giving J.U. a chance to shine. Okay? It, the third feeding is actually in chapter 14. There's a third feeding in Mark's gospel. And in that third feeding, Jesus will speak as what? His body as the bread that's broken. He'll, he'll speak, right, uh, of his blood as the cup poured out before he goes to die on the cross. That's why the cross, Jesus takes on himself the ultimate sickness and disease for you, our sin and our guilt, so that we may be healed. Uh, that's why at the cross, the storm and the waves of God's judgment fall on him so that we might know peace and safety. Now, I want you to notice, maybe you're not a Christian and you're here, you're here, for, but you've never embraced uh, Jesus. I want you to notice how Christianity is very different to religion. Because in religion, the God actually says, be good and I'll save you. Pay or make up for your sin and I'll forgive you. That's why in religion, the path to salvation in religion is always through your good works. Uh, what you must effectively do to save yourself, which is why religion always says, you must save yourself. But in Christianity, what happens is God comes down and he says in Jesus, I will save you by dying for you. I will actually pay for your guilt and your sin with my life. I will bear the costs of judgment for your sin. I will die in your place to save you. In Christianity, the path to salvation is through Jesus' work on the cross. He comes as king to save you himself. And so you notice, right, the path of salvation in religion is always through your work. The demands of religion is that you must work to save yourself. The path of salvation in Christianity is always through Jesus' work for you. And so the demands in Christianity is simply to trust Jesus' work for you. Now, Peter can't accept that. So look at verse 32. Peter took Jesus aside and began to rebuke him. Just can't accept that, right? He takes the king aside. And Jesus responds, verse 33, Jesus turned, looked at his disciples, and he rebuked Peter. Get behind me, Satan, he said. You do not have in mind the concerns of God, but merely human concerns. You want a religious way to save yourself. You want a man-centered, human-centered way to save yourself. Well, it just doesn't work. You want salvation without, without your Savior dying. 
You want a victory without a crucifixion. You want a glory without a cross. You want a kingdom without pain and suffering. And Jesus says, it doesn't work that way because you can't save yourself. You can't die for your sin. You can't pay for uh, the judgment that you deserve. So notice with me now verse 34 to 38, because if the way of the king is to suffer and die, if the way for Jesus as your king is to save through his death, then it's also no surprise that he calls his disciples to follow him along the same path. This is the logic of verse 34. Then he called the crowd to him along with his disciples, and he said, whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. Now, this is one of the most, um, I would say, most well-known passages in Mark's gospel, the call of Jesus to his disciples. This is what he'll mean, he says, to follow me. To follow me, he says now, is to walk the path of suffering, rejection, and death after him, the way he goes to the cross. Whoever wants to be my disciple must deny themselves, take up their cross, and follow me. And so, Notice Jesus says, this is now the road for everyone who would choose to trust me and follow me, all who call him king. And there are two things there I want to highlight. Firstly, he says, it'll mean deny yourself. Uh, To deny yourself, to follow Jesus, right, that's the trajectory of the Christian life, is to put aside the I, the me, myself, my way, my will, my purpose in life to allow Jesus to lead the way. He leads the way, stay close to him. And that takes shape uh, in many different ways. Uh, For the proud, it might actually mean saying no to status and wealth to follow Jesus. For the greedy, it might mean saying no to consumerism in life to follow Jesus. For the complacent, it might mean saying no to, to convenience in life to follow Jesus. For the fearful, it might mean putting aside the desire for security to follow Jesus. For the violent and vengeful, it might mean saying no to revenge to follow Jesus. So to deny self is to say no to the inherent rule of self, to the rule of your self-desires in life, and saying yes instead to the rule of Jesus and his desires for you. Choosing his way, his leading, his priorities, his purpose, his life, his word, his will. It's to say, Jesus, you lead the way in my life. Not my way, not my way, but your way, your will, not mine. Some of you have read the book by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, The Cost of Discipleship. If you haven't, let me encourage you to read that book. It's like one of the books that every Christian should read in their lifetime. In that book, he writes, To deny oneself is to be aware only of Christ and no more of self. In other words, to have Jesus on the horizon of your life and not self. To see only him who goes before. To have him lead the way and no more the road which is too hard of us. To focus on him and not the road in front of you. Once more, all that self-denial can say is this, he leads the way, keep close to him. That's what it means. He leads the way, stay close to him, right? But notice a second thing, it means taking up the cross. To carry a cross is to be willing to carry the heavy burden of pain and suffering and inconvenience and discomfort as you follow Jesus. Because the cross in the Bible stands ultimately for death. It's a symbol of death, right? Uh, and, and if death is the boundary for the Christian, then there is nothing in your life that's off limits to Jesus, correct? Uh, to take up the cross means being willing to carry the pain and suffering and inconvenience and discomfort that comes from putting Jesus first. Uh, and that might mean 
being willing to be in a position of insecurity, bearing the burden of insecurity because you've decided to be generous for the mission of Jesus. Uh, to take up the cross means being willing to personally bear the pain and hurt right? When so, that, that other people cause you when, you when you love and serve them because Jesus has forgiven you. To take up the cross means bearing the cost of obeying Jesus, even if it means it disadvantages you. To take up the cross means persevering in love and personally enduring the ungrateful, even as you love and serve them, because Jesus has persevered with you. And so I want to say to you, here's the difference between someone who likes Jesus and someone who is a disciple of Jesus. We sing, survey the cross, right? When we survey the cross. Well, disciples do more than just survey the cross. They do more than say they love the cross. They don't just sing about the cross. They carry it in their lives. That's the difference, right? And sometimes the cross you carry is light, isn't it? You know, I look around the room. I see some of you wearing crosses around your neck. That's light, isn't it? Sometimes carrying the cross is going to be a burden that is going to be very personally heavy and sometimes painful and crushing and sometimes humiliating as you seek to follow Jesus in life. But that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus. Where he goes, he goes, you go. Where he walks, you walk. As he goes to the cross, so do you. Challenging, isn't it? But I want to say to you that the cost of following Jesus is also marked by a very unexpected promise. And you find that in verse 35 to verse 38. Okay? Now, remember, Jesus didn't just speak of suffering and death, did he? Even in verse 31, what is the last word? The last word is, and after three days rise again. Can you see there? Self-denial is never the last word. Suffering is not the last word. Death is not the last word. Jesus says there will be a resurrection. Can you see there? So it's no surprise that when he calls us to follow him, he says it's the same for us as disciples of Jesus. Look at verse 35. Denying self, carrying your cross isn't the end. They are, he says, eternal implications. The painful road we live in self-denial and sacrifice goes beyond. And that's why Jesus says, whoever wants to save their life will lose it. Whoever loses their life for me in the gospel will save it. What good is it if someone gains the whole world yet forfeits their soul? Or what can anyone give in exchange for their soul? Now, you read that and, and you begin to realize it's both a promise and a warning, isn't it? He says, don't trade the present for the future because remember that your suffering will give way to eternity. You can walk the, the road of comfort and convenience, the path of least resistance in the Christian life. But remember, there are consequences tomorrow because look at verse 35. Whoever wants to save his life, build his own kingdom, secure his comfort in life, will lose it. But whoever loses their life for me, loses their security serving me, experiences suffering and loss obeying me, denies themselves for me, carries a cross for me, and for the gospel will, save it. You see there? Serving Jesus, giving generously to the gospel rather than making your comfort a priority in life, making choices that mean you lose out in this life, maybe your career and your work, because Jesus is your priority in life. Jesus says, doing that is not to waste your life. It's to find life. Isn't that interesting? I want to say to you this morning, you know, when you read verses like this, it's so countercultural because Jesus says, by turning your back on this life, you will find life. 
Jesus is not anti-life. Don't get me wrong, right? Jesus is not anti-life and all the things you enjoy in life. Jesus is anti-preoccupation with our lives and preoccupation with our comfort and our security and our money and our convenience and ourselves. You know, I love the story of John Patton. You know, and every opportunity I get, I tell John Patton's story, right? John Patton uh, was a missionary, someone most of you have never heard of. He served 10 years as pastor of a growing church in Scotland. So he had a good ministry, safe ministry. Then God gave him uh, a burden for the New Hebrides. You know what we know as the Pacific Islands? And uh, the gospel at the time in the uh, 1824, 1850s had never gone out there. And the reason why the gospel had never gone out to the New Hebrides, what we know today as the Pacific Islands, is because 20 years earlier, uh, missionaries had gone out and they never came back because they got eaten. They were butchered and cannibalized. So it's no surprise, no one wanted to go to the New Hebrides. Okay? It's not like what, today, everyone wants to go on holiday Pacific Islands, right? And, and people actually said to John Patton, don't go. Why would you? It's such a noble task, right? But it's foolish because if you go, you will lose your life. It's more effective to stay in Scotland, pastor the church you're at. Why risk security and comfort in your family? And then Patton in his, in his um, journal writes, Among many who sought to deter me was one dear old Christian man whose crowning argument was this, right? This is his argument. The cannibals, Mr. Patton, you will be eaten by cannibals. Patton replies, Mr. Dixon, you are advanced in years now, because fairly elderly, and your own prospect is soon to be laid in the grave, there to be eaten by worms. I confess to you, if I can but live and die serving and honoring Jesus, it will make no difference whether I'm eaten by cannibals or by worms. And in that great day, my resurrection body will arise as fair as yours in the likeness of our risen Redeemer. And so the old man leaves exclaiming after that i have nothing more to say and at the age of 33 not much older than you know many of you here uh patton traveled to the new hebrides with his wife it wasn't an easy journey his wife and newborn child they died months after they arrived he found himself alone he buried them with his bare hands digging graves to bury them uh, he faced threats to his life Yet, in the following years, countless of cannibals across the islands of the New Hebrides came to know Jesus. The church across Australia, Scotland, and the Western world, they were challenged to rise up, and they began to send missionaries to the New Hebrides. That's a life surrendered to Jesus. That's a life of self-denial and cross-carrying sacrifice, where Jesus leads the way. Now, there is an alternative, isn't it? Uh, and some of you are familiar with the name Julius de Kiva. I've mentioned here many times at Grace Point. I was so curious, right? I went and Googled her again to see whether she was still up there among the rich kids of Instagram, and she still is. She's now known as the Golden Girl of London. Recent magazine article writes, she lives a life that millions of girls around the world dream of. Still does. Fashion addiction of the girl is very predictable. She consumes designer clothes, the wardrobe of the Golden Girls estimated at half a million pounds each year. In an interview with a British TV show, she said she received her first expensive thing at age nine. It was an LV bag. Since then, luxury has been part of her life. 
She has more than 100 pairs of shoes in a closet and her collection increases every month for three to four pairs. She owns 100 handbags costing over 7000 each and she spends 400000 a year on clothes and travels six times a year to Moscow to her favorite hairdresser. Her life is endless shopping and traveling. Now, some of the gents in this room are thinking, well, that's a nightmare. But for a lot of other people, you're like, wow, what a life. And, you know, I remember John Piper saying this, you know, come to the end of your one God-given life and let the only significant thing in your life be this, your great collection of handbags and shoes, your travel photos. That's a tragedy, isn't it? I want to say to you, don't buy into that lie. Don't waste your life. And so I've given you two extremes, right? John Patton, Julius Takiva, Rich Kid of Instagram. Now, I want to say to you... Um, 99% of people in this room will not be a John Patton because you look at his life and say, I just can't do that. Um, and you look at Julius Takiba's life and you aspire to it, though you and I know we'll never come close to her lifestyle as one of the rich kids of Instagram. But, you know, secretly we aspire to it. Uh, if I probe your heart in our heart and hearts, we wish we could be like that. But maybe, just maybe, all of you in this room, you and I, we can be more like some of these other people I've known. Okay? Let me tell you of other people I've known who've lived this life, very differently, denied self, carried a cross for Jesus. David is a friend of mine. He was a single working professional architect. Uh, and he went overseas for a couple of years, right? Not to make money, not to advance his career, but he thought he'd go to the third world to help in development, to help build the local church. He decided to spend quite a number of years overseas uh, he could, where he could build relationships with his workmates. He could support the local church as a Bible study leader because they needed that and help in all these different ways to build the church in the third world. Most people, they go overseas to make money, to increase their experience, to advance their career. Other people make different choices in life because of Jesus who saved them, denying themselves, carrying a cross, making real sacrifices. Jesus leads the way and they stay close to him. Lawrence, uh, a family member. He was a student doctor who used his uh, practical term, his work experience, to go serve in a mission hospital in the third world. Niger. I know other Christian doctors who, at university who do do that. But you know, most Christian doctors, when they do their practice, what do they do? They pick easy places to go overseas. So they go to the UK. Maybe they go to Singapore. They do a practical term. No one really cares if they turn up. And they spend their term touring Europe or going on holidays. Other people make very different choices in life because Jesus has saved them. Denying themselves, carrying a cross, Jesus leads the way and they stick close to him. Many, many years ago, a friend of mine, Anna, she used to work for Crusaders. Crusaders is an outreach ministry to high school students here in Sydney. Some of you have benefited from that. She was the marketing manager. She was running a fundraising night. Um, and as she shared about the work of Crusaders and, and, and high school students coming to know Jesus, she also shared their financial needs. The week later, she said it was really amazing. Uh, a couple actually called her. Uh, they had an investment property that they decided to sell after they heard her share. And so they sold their little investment unit, 500000 and the money went to Crusaders. Now, most people, they invest, right, to build their nest egg so that they have future financial security. Well, other people make different choices in life because Jesus has saved them. And so they know that denying themselves, making a real sacrifice is no loss because there's more to come. Jesus leads the way they stick close to him. None of what my friends have done is a wasted life. 
at every stage of life, whether you are a student, a worker, married with kids, a retiree, you must ask yourself, who leads the way? Who is Jesus to you? It's a good question to ask, isn't it? Define the relationship. Friends, church, who is Jesus to you? Define your relationship. Now, maybe some of you here for the first time have realized you are more like the crowds who like Jesus. You've got a positive view, but you have never actually seen him as your king and savior. So maybe this morning, your eyes have been opened to him, the one who has come as king to die for you. And maybe today you do want to say to him, Jesus, you lead the way and I'll follow. Help me stay close to you. If that's you, let me invite you to do that when we pray. Or, or maybe some of you here for the first time, you realize, you know, you're actually not on the road with Jesus, even though you're part of the crowd. You've always been part of the crowd, but you're actually not on the road with Jesus. You're still living your own life. You're concerned only for your own comfort, your own security, your own finances, your future, your lifestyle. Maybe this morning for the first time, your eyes have been opened to Jesus. You see that he's the king who's come die for you. And maybe today you want to say to him, you know what? I want to put aside my comfort my security, my positions. I want to deny myself the way you denied yourself for me. I want to carry the cross the way you carried the cross to save me. I want to give you my life. I want to entrust my life to you the way you have given your life for me. Jesus, you lead the way. I'll follow. Help me stay close to you. If that's you, let me invite you to do that as we pray. Or maybe some of you here for the first time have realized you look at the landscape of your life and all the things you're obsessed with, and maybe you've realized you are just wasting your life. You're trading eternity for the present. You're trying to have it all, and you're holding everything back because you simply will not surrender stuff in your life to Him. Maybe you've realized you're just simply afraid. You're scared to deny self and carry a cross. And maybe this morning, for the very first time, your eyes have been opened to the King who has come to save you. And so today, maybe you've decided you want to say, Jesus, I actually want to walk the road to Jerusalem with you. I want to do hard things for you. I want to make my life and all the stuff you've given me, the resources, the opportunities, I want to make that stuff count for you. I don't want to waste my life. Maybe that's you. And if that's you, Jesus says, look to him. Maybe the prayer for you today is, Jesus, you lead the way. I'll follow. Help me stay close to you. And if that's you, let me invite you to do that as we pray. Let's pray. Gracious God, we want to come to you in a spirit of repentance. Because we do know we love our lives more than we love you. We love our comforts and our security more than we love you. Open our eyes today as we see who you are, not just in your power, but also in your love. As the one who comes to save us, as the one who exchanges his life for ours. We come in a spirit of repentance and we do acknowledge that sometimes we love our comfort, our security, our money, our wealth. We're more obsessed with our future and our children, our homes, our investments, more than we are willing to deny ourselves and carry a cross in following you. We're so short-sighted because we, we think that 
the, the path of inconvenience and discomfort and serving you ends only in death. We forget there is a resurrection, that there is more to come. And so this morning we ask that you might lead the way and that we might stay close to you. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.